Good morning. <clears throat> I want to thank my friends who sat down here by me. I appreciate that. It's, it's lonely down in front. Also, I want to thank <clears throat> a number of surprise compliments today. Um, how youthful I look. Um, remarks about how much lighter I look and uh, I, I just well I got a haircut so thank you but now many of you are going to schedule haircuts we are in 1st Corinthians we are in chapter 10 this morning as you recall chapters 8 9 and 10 of Paul's letter are of a theme addressing a subject, and that subject is the matter of eating meat that has been offered to idols. So we're going to resume that in chapter 10 uh, this morning. I would like to read it. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ or the Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I was 19 when I memorized 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. In the navigator's topical memory system, have any of you ever 
memorize scripture out of the navigator's topical memory system? Well, it's a box of Bible verses on cards, like flash cards. And uh, it's a wonderful way to carry a, a card with you, a small card with that scripture, and they are topical. So they kind of relate to issues in your life. And uh, that's how I memorized 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, in the King James Version. It's a wonderful way and an important way. We need to meditate. We need to ponder. We need to sow, as it were, God's word into our thinking, into our hearts, into our lives. It's important that we know God's word in a world of everybody else's word. But what I missed in the Navigator's Topical Memory System was the situation, the story, the verse before and the verse after. And of course, the episode in this story is chapters 8 through 10. And the strong Corinthians, that's what Paul calls some of the Corinthians uh, in the church of Corinth, the strong Corinthians, uh, those are the ones with knowledge who use their freedom guaranteed by their knowledge to attend parties uh, thrown by their pagan friends and business partners and associates. And those parties, those events, those social gatherings involved them in foods and involved them in activities and involved them in places that were woven with their past idolatry. They took place in temple precincts in the presence of idols, and the meat itself and some of the things served had first been offered to the idols and now became some of the fare uh, which they were celebrating. The strong said, no problem. We know better than to believe that old stuff. We're not going to fall for idols. But the weak who saw them engaged in those activities said, there is a problem. You are worshiping idols. And the strong said, no, we aren't. And the weak said, yes, you are. And the strong said, no, we're not. And the weak said, yes, you are. And the whole thing turns into an ugly reality show. Corinthians are throwing their rights and wrongs at each other, and points are being scored on each side of the issue. But winning the battle means losing the war. In verse 13, Paul says, what about God? You see, he says, we are tempted or tested when we're drawn or attracted to things that, if we follow them, lead us to be unfaithful 
to God. Lead us to act in a way contrary to our love for God, contrary to our professed allegiance to God. Paul says, God is faithful, even when our faithfulness to him is at stake even when our faithfulness to him is tested. God is faithful. He wants us to know that no test of our faithfulness requires us to be anything but what we are, human, 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 through and through. We are not expected to be superhuman in order to withstand the test of our faithfulness. In fact, God wants our human love and our human faithfulness. That is the kind of love and faithfulness and allegiance that we can prove to him which is meaningful to him, real to him, true to him. And we show it to him when we choose him over others, over other things, things that would call us to turn away from the Lord. And God will not allow us, Paul says, to be tested in any way we cannot prevail. In fact, whenever we're attracted or drawn into something that tests our faithfulness to God, God will show us or provide us an exit path, a way out, so that we have the power within our own humanness within ourselves to love God, to turn to God, to trust God, to believe in him, and not to turn away, to endure it and bear up under it. So, what's the problem? Well, if we look at the verse before verse 13, Paul says in verse 12, he warns them, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Anyone, that means not one of us here today is excluded. Anyone who thinks he or she stands, take heed lest you fall. And then he says something right after verse 13 that is also very telltale. He says in The very next verse, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, in other words, you whom I care so much about, he says, flee, run from idolatry. What is Paul concerned about? What could possibly go wrong? Why would they not do what Paul is encouraging them to do? 
Well, I'm going to give you the theological answer. They're cocky. Yeah, they, they, they're strutting like a barnyard rooster. They're kind of full of themselves. That's where the word comes from. They are in need of a, a strong dose of an awareness of God, an awareness of his presence. Uh, they need to be refreshed in their awareness of who God is. In fact, their knowledge, their studied attention has actually taken the place of a healthy reverence for God. I've seen this happen in my own life. Knowledge about God can become a representation of God that loses sight of the very presence and reality of God. And just as with idols, which they know are not real and do not exist, they can become numb to the demonic influence at work through those very idols. They need, and sometimes we need, I know I need, a healthy fear of the Lord, a healthy respect, a healthy reverence and appreciation of who he is and that he is not far away. He is not asleep. He is very present. Sometimes, and maybe it's the world that we and the world, our children, and the world, the next generation, should the Lord tarry, will live in, is a, Lord in, is a world in which we are just by the culture and be, by its teachings and by its beliefs are increasingly experiencing something of a natural disconnect when it comes to the reality of God in our lives. I know that you will easily find fault with me, but I'm just trying to illustrate the disconnect that can take place, how we can be engaged in talking about God as though he's not even in the room. How we can pray to him, but in our prayers sometimes, and I've heard pastors do this often, they talk about him in the third person as though they're not even talking to him, invoking him, interceding on our behalf to him. I'm not trying to legislate this. I am in no position to judge the attitude of the heart, but I'm just trying to bring to our attention some little things that we do that sometimes do not, do not demonstrate the conditions of our lives based on the reality of the biblical worldview, the one to which we subscribe, the one in which we are saved, our sins forgiven, God's grace real, and his presence apparent to us. And this is a problem. I'm even going to pick. Sometimes I, we worship as though we're not really worshiping God at all. 
We sing songs as though we're not even talking to him. We're not even engaged in this. We're busy looking around at others. God's in some other temple. God's in some other place. Why even call it worship? Or when we receive the bread and the cup that represents the very foundation of who we are, representing Jesus Christ to us, how do we take that? Recently, I saw someone receive it with their knees crossed. You know, the, the, what I do when I'm at my most ease and casual. Now, I'm, again, I'm, I'm going to take some shots here. I'm just trying to awaken this. I'm not trying to judge you. I judge myself first, and I realize that I fall into this a lot. Annie Dillard in, his, in her book, Teaching a Stone, I remember reading this some time ago. I was recalled, called to mind this week. I went back and read it again. I want to share it with you. She writes, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Just let that sink in a minute. They are not sufficiently sensible of conditions. I take her to mean what's going on. What's going on even here now? What's going on around us? She continues, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely, that is, casually invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Well, Dillard is well aware that God is not sleeping, but she's asking the question, are we, we who call ourselves Christians, are we? Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, I'll refresh your memory, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. You may want to read it again later. But Jesus visits his own hometown. And after a while there, he makes this comment to one of his, to his disciples. He says, he says, a prophet is honored except in his own hometown. In other words, where he's best known, where, he's, where everyone's really familiar with him. In fact, he says, it, it says that he could do no miracle there because of the unbelief. We want God to move in our lives. Can he move if we don't even think he's here in our lives, present to act? or just present to act when we have a need or some small claim for him to attend to? 
are we as equally attentive to the things that he's trying to move us to do? And might we see him move in ways we do not if we realized this power, this person, this God that we so blithely invoke? It's been said familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we become way too casual with our God, perhaps because of the conception of him, the knowledge of him that we have formed in which it becomes a representation of him that we can manage and is convenient instead of the real, true, living God. And that is why Paul gives the stern warning to the Corinthians that he does in verses chapter of chapter 10 verses 1 through 10 in verses let me set this up though just for a moment in chapter 9 you recall Paul says you know I have rights like you have I have privileges and entitlements but I've not and will not let those Privileges, rights, and entitlements get in the way of doing what God has and is telling me to do. Sometimes rights, privileges, and entitlements become so important to us that they preoccupy us and they do get in the way of hearing the very heartbeat the very voice, the very moving of God in our lives. Paul says, I have special rights, privileges, and entitlements, just like you do, you who are fighting over them. But I would never let them stand in the way of responding to what God is prompting me to do in my life. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, right on the heels of that, he, Paul says, I see myself as an athlete. I train and rigorously discipline myself so that I myself am not disqualified in doing what God wants me to do. And so then right out of that into chapter 10, He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers. Now, this is really interesting. He wants them to understand that the people he's talking about are the people of God, our forefathers, our forebearers. We are not of a different piece of God's work. We are part of a seamless piece of God's work. In fact, he says in verse 11, he says, they have come as instructive illustrations to us who live in the final age of what God is doing, the end ages. And so he says, In verse 6, why were they overthrown in the wilderness? They let their desires, their cravings, he says, lead them. They turned 
to their heart's desires and turned against the desires of God's heart. This word for craving is quite powerful because it's derivative of the very word for meat, which was the fundamental issue that started this, this whole actually very delicate dialogue uh, in which Paul is trying to get through to the Corinthians in the most uh, uh, diplomatic way because he wants them to hear the heart of God. And then in verse 7, he begins to touch on some specific things that evolved or emerged out of their desires, their cravings that got in the way of their desire for God, their faithfulness to God. In verse 7, it says they turned to idolatry. And he cites chapter 32 of Exodus, Exodus 32, verse 6. He embeds that citation right there in his reference to idolatry. The point is, is that of the many episodes of the Israelites' experiences with God, he starts with this telltale incident in Exodus 32, the whole chapter. And then in verse 8, He says they engaged in sexual immorality. And there are telltale clues that he is alluding to the incident in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And then in verse 9, he says they put God, they put the Messiah, the Christ. Whenever you read Christ in the writings of Paul, you should think Messiah. They put the Messiah to the test, he really brings it down personal here because Paul is, in effect, saying of the, all, all the things you're dabbling with, you need to question, are you putting Christ himself, your Messiah, to the test? But he's alluding in some of his language to an incident in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And then in verse 10, he says, they grumbled which is more than just a little, you know, I'm hot. I wish somebody would turn on the air conditioner. No, it's more than that. This is a discontented complaining. And the allusion, and there were so many, is to Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 through 50. But it is stunning how often God's people turned their backs on him to worship idols. And the first incident, which I mentioned and Paul brings to our attention by citing Exodus 32.6, is that incident of idolatry in Exodus 32. And when you look at that, and you know the story, don't you? Moses and Moses leading the people under the cloud and led by the pillar of light are brought to Mount Sinai. They have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They have been brought through the Red Sea. They have at significant points been cared for by bread from heaven and water from the rock. And now they come to Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up 
And he's there for 40 days. And the people grow impatient. And so they start appealing to Aaron, Moses' brother, their priest. And he says, okay, folks, let's uh, bring all your gold jewelry, rings, utensils, everything that you, you know, anything you have that you were able to bring with you out of Egypt, bring it all here, and we're going to melt it down, and we're going to make an image, and he makes an image uh, of a golden calf, and he calls this their God. But here's what we often miss. When they got to Mount Sinai, we're told that it had only been three months. It was only the third month since they had been brought, delivered out of Egypt. Three months. I, I don't, whatever their calendar, that's three moons. That's not long. How could they so quickly re forget what, what God had done for them? What's going on here? Well, some have answered that question that they came out of 400 years. That's not that the people were 400 years old, but that for 400 years they were deeply ingrained in the, in the idol worship, in the false worship that was carried on while they were captive in Egypt. And so as soon as they grow impatient, and where did Moses and God go? They revert back to their idolatry. I don't doubt that, but maybe there's something more going on here. I want you to think about this for just a moment. In Exodus chapter 19, when they arrive at Mount Sinai, before the golden calf incident, which took place, like I said, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. Before that, when they arrived, the Lord told Moses that he was going to descend upon the mountain in a dense cloud and instructed Moses to consecrate the people for the occasion. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And they they engage in significant rituals of purification over three days before the presence of the Lord descends upon the mountain. And then we read, after three days, this is in 16 through 19, in three days, after three days, the Lord showed up. So it came about on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunder, lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. I mean, it's a powerful scene. 
all the CGI stuff in movies anymore has diminished our capacity to use our imagination. Some of you who are older, growing up with books and all, you can, you can visualize. If some of you are impaired, you need to think deeply about this and visualize what's really going on here. It not only un- underscores God's holiness and majesty, it's just absolutely terrifying. And they trembled in the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. I mean, think about it. Remember when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration? What happened to the disciples? All of a sudden, they became aware of things because they were manifest to them. And Peter, he wants to get down and worship and build tents. temples to those present. But see here, when we visit this, we see the contrast between God and an idol. And the contrast becomes ever clearer. We're told that offerings, when they offered sacrifices to the calves, the Israelites sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. It had a kind of a sexual bent to it, by the way. And when God descended on Mount Sinai, everyone in the camp trembled. Do you catch the difference between an idol and the revealed presence of God? You you don't tremble before an idol. An idol is safe. It never challenges you. It isn't threatening. It doesn't judge sin. It doesn't demand loyalty. But the Holy One of Israel is a jealous God, passionate and loving, yes, but unspeakably dangerous too. And that's something that we often lose sight of. Are we different than the Israelites? We may not make golden calves, but we're continually pulling God down to our level. We're forever creating more comfortable versions of God to worship. We too can exchange the intimacy of the living God for the dangerous illusions of a manageable deity. I want you to notice something that's really quite interesting. After making the golden calf, Aaron proclaimed, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And then in the very next verse, verse five, he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. That is to Yahweh. That's what the Lord translates, the personal holy name of God, Yahweh. Now, we know these gods didn't bring them out of Egypt. I just wonder, could an idolatrous party be described as a festival to the Lord? Or, as some scholars believe, did Aaron fashioned that idol 
intending it to be a representation of the Lord, of Yahweh. If that's so, their great sin was not in worshiping idols and other gods, it was assigning God a replacement, assigning God an image, an image that is not fearful, an image that is manageable, an image that can be manipulated, that you can throw festivals in front of, that you can be casual around. It was reducing God to something that he is not and making that the object of their worship. And that, I'm afraid, is something that we do too. We make God something that we can box, package, manage, handle. We, we lose sight of the living God. And we would benefit from a healthy fear of the Lord. Bill Moyers, in his book, A World of Ideas 2, quotes writer Jacob Needleman. Uh, Needleman was an observer, observer of, the, of the Apollo 17th launch in 1975, and he writes about it. I'm not going to read everything he writes. It's, it's pretty graphic. Maybe you've seen uh, an Apollo launch. I remember what struck me in 1969 when they set that Apollo launch. And that's what he describes. He describes his presence in a bar where there were other reporters and there's a television and they're all watching this take off. But until the actual launch, everybody's just chit-chatting. There's all this laughter and activity. But as the launch begins, it grows quiet as people begin to watch this, this power, this amazing thing. And then to imagine people inside of that and how the he does a better job than me, but I want to get to something else he describes. He describes what happens after that, that launch passes out of sight and the silence is sunk in. And then he says, people just get up and I quote, quietly helping each other. They're kind. They open doors. They look at one another speaking quietly and interestingly. Interestedly, these were suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder, had made them moral. That's what the wonder of God does in a person's life. The fear of God has the same effect. It's awe and reverence which can cause us to tremble before him and to wonder at him and to walk in obedience and to be moral and to want to be pure and pleasing to an almighty God. The worst response we could make is in all of our intellectual superiority to say, well, if God shows up in my life like the launch of an Apollo rocket, I'll show reverence or I'll tremble in his presence. 
But God has acted in history, not only with his people, the Israelites, but also with Christians. And Paul draws upon the most dramatic, most important, most significant miracle and act of God. That's why he says, do you test the Christ, the Messiah? In all of God's acts for our life, for our salvation, for our transformation. He doesn't keep doing tricks. He calls us to faithfulness and the reality of who he really is in light of who he has revealed himself to be. If we're living for those exciting sensations, we'll live in desperation and we'll do what the Corinthians are doing, craving sensations just like the Israelites did and not the reality through faith and a healthy fear and reverence of the true God, our Creator, our Almighty Redeemer. And so he says in verse 7, don't take part in idol worship. And the question becomes to us, are we making idols? Idolatry begins when we invest created things with ultimate significance. When something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, you are worshiping it. Verse 8, Paul says, let us, he's so sensitive here, He knows the realities. Let us not engage in sexual immorality. It's not sex. It's sexual immorality that he prohibits. The cravings, the lust, the giving of pride of place to the sensual over the spiritual, the flesh over faith, the groin over God. Do you know where addictions begin? When we invest created things with ultimate significance. This is so important to me. And it becomes an addiction because it is a manifestation of an idolatry in our life and our hearts when we put these things above our responsibilities, commitments to the people in our lives and above all to God in our life. Verse 9, should, we should not put Christ to the test. I'll be honest with you. I've said this in my heart. I can do what I want. It'll be all right. God will forgive me. I have his word on that. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. But what we're doing is we're using God's grace against him in our relationship with him as though we've got him over a barrel. And verse 10, Paul says, stop your discontented complaining. This is, this is the complaining that grows out of the Israelites' desire, get this, to return to Egypt. They have so 
idealize their past that they want to return to a life and a slavery that predated God's deliverance and all he had done for them. If God is not real to you in your life, if your relationship with him is not vital and vibrant and living, it will become warped and you will long for something more sensational and you'll even look to a dead past. It will manifest itself in discontented grumbling. A warped view of God leads to a warped view of reality. Paul says, beware, lest thinking you stand, you fall. We stand. <laughs> That's a strong message. We don't, God, Paul's not suggesting we become legalistic. He's suggesting we become relational with the God we know is our relational God. I just encourage you in your walk with Christ to deepen that faith and trust and the reality of his presence in your life in the way you manage and live your life. Let me close in prayer for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit at work in us, in us, in your people, your church. Use us in mighty ways. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.